I'm uh, not to speak, but to introduce our next speaker, which I'm very honored to do. Uh, there's a there's a Miss Bit Bitcoin out there. Uh, some of you may know about her. But Judy Shelton is just uh, she's Miss Sound Money in the general broader sense. Uh, she has been an ambassador for Sound Money as well as a, a writer uh, of distinction uh, 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 on that subject for quite a long time now. Her book on uh, 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 Money Meltdown was uh, a bestseller back in 1994, and uh, now she is the co-director of the Atlas Institute's Sound Money project, and so kind of my counterpart over there at Atlas. Uh, and most recently, uh, she's authored as part of that uh, project uh, a guide to sound money that I recommend to all of you. Uh, Judy also frequently writes for the top newspapers and so gets the word out better than anybody on these uh, topics that uh, she and I are both very interested in promoting. So please welcome Judy Shelton. Thank you, George, for the nice introduction, and my thanks to Tom Palmer for asking me to be part of Cato University. I love the Cato Institute. I love its devotion to individual liberty and free markets, and I especially appreciate its emphasis on the need for sound money. Every November, the Cato Institute puts on a monetary conference that brings together scholars and advocates for fundamental monetary reform. They've been doing it for 32 years now. I've had the privilege of speaking at Cato's annual monetary conference on quite a few occasions, including this past year. I serve on the Executive Advisory Council for Cato's new Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Uh, I was invited by John Allison. So I am a big fan of George Selgin, who directs that center. Today, I'd like to talk with you about a subject that represents the convergence of economics and politics. I want to talk about money and currencies and what happens when currencies are out of whack with each other and what happens when currencies are, when money itself is out of whack with the real economy. Because currency chaos in the world today and the potential for another global financial crisis pose a serious threat to the continued viability of the model we embrace, which relies on free markets and free people as the best way to generate real economic growth. When we talk about money, it necessarily leads to a discussion of the proper role of government in a free market economy. If money does not have integrity, if it does not provide a meaningful measure and a reliable store of value, Free markets can't function properly. They can't function the way they need to if people are to be able to make rational decisions about what to buy or sell, what to produce, where to invest, how much to save. Free markets rely on price signals which are conveyed through money. Prices are denominated in units of money. So it is vital that the money itself signals clearly the value of the asset, the service, or the investment opportunity. You have to be able to trust that money 
so you can make informed decisions whether you're carrying out your daily transactions or planning your whole financial future. Money is meant to serve as a tool of measurement in the marketplace. It's not supposed to be just another policy instrument of government. So how much can you trust the money these days? Who defines what money is worth? Who maintains the integrity of the money as a unit of account? These questions matter, not just here in the United States in terms of the impact of the Federal Reserve. These questions matter because we live in a global economy. You've heard it a million times, and it's true. We live in a global economy. What happened in 2008 was a global financial crisis, a global meltdown. So here's a question. Was that crisis caused because Alan Greenspan kept interest rates too low for too long? Did the Federal Reserve enable too much money and credit to go sloshing around the world into subprime mortgages and dicey financial derivatives? Were the bankers who provided those mortgages predatory? Or were they responding to bad price signals conveyed through money that was being managed by the Fed, the world's most dominant central bank? Central planning does not have a very good reputation. In my early years as a postdoctoral fellow out at Stanford, at the Hoover Institution, I focused on analyzing the economy of the Soviet Union. And this was in the mid-1980s. Mikhail Gorbachev had just come into power. And in our country, we were wondering about this new Soviet leader and his plans to reform the Soviet economy and make it work better. My work concentrated on the monetary and fiscal condition of the Soviet Union. And it became apparent to me that the USSR was going bankrupt fast because the government was spending way too much and running a huge budget deficit. The Soviet Central Bank was financing that deficit by absorbing government debt and then channeling it through the Soviet banking system so that these credit instruments were basically being recycled back to the government rather than going into any kind of productive activity. And yes, if you discern a parallel there with what's happening in our country, uh, I might refer you to an op-ed of mine published in the Wall Street Journal entitled, The Soviet Banking System and Ours. My point in bringing up the shortcomings of central planning in the context of central banking is that when you permit the meaning of money to be manipulated, when government has the power to compromise the integrity of money in order to accommodate its own fiscal irresponsibility, you end up with distortions. Monetary distortions cause financial capital to be misdirected. They undermine the soundness of an economy because they draw funding into unproductive financial activity instead of supporting capital investment in the real economy to finance projects that might actually raise living standards. So let's think about the 2008 global financial crisis, the one the Federal Reserve never saw coming. What have we learned from that debacle, besides the fact that it's mostly Main Street, not Wall Street, that suffers the consequences of a global meltdown and subsidizes the bailout? Here we are seven years later, 
and we have granted even more power to central banks to use money as a policy instrument for altering the financial decisions people make in accordance with what government thinks is best versus providing individuals with an accurate measure of value so they can decide for themselves. Today, the US Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, and the People's Bank of China utterly dominate global financial markets, using their expanded powers to alter the demand and supply of credit instruments. They buy up massive amounts of assets and distort market prices, with the result that vitally needed investment capital goes largely into government debt instruments. Money has deviated very far from its primary function as an accurate measure of value. We need to rethink the role of money for a nation dedicated to free people and free markets. We need to rethink the role of money for a global economy that presumably believes in free trade as a way to increase prosperity and presumably believes that democratic capitalism has a future. So let's get back to basics and consider what kind of money would be consistent with the principles of cross-border trade and competitive markets. Now this is not something that requires specialized economic knowledge or financial sophistication. Money should be convenient to use, easy to comprehend, and it should work for everyone, measuring value in a way that makes sense. Now, this is not just me talking. It's Thomas Jefferson. In the spring of 1784, Jefferson wrote out 12 handwritten pages describing how to set up a common currency. His goal was to facilitate commerce among the 13 former colonies that now comprise the newly independent United States of America. The treaty ending the Revolutionary War had been signed only six months earlier. It was a critical moment in the birth of a sovereign nation, one comprised of separate states, each with its own preferred mishmash of circulating coins. How do you establish a monetary standard in the midst of currency chaos? How do you define a money unit? It's rather remarkable that Jefferson chose to use the term money unit throughout this document. We see it on the very first line, which begins, notes on the establishment of a money unit and of a coinage for the United States. Jefferson not only uses the word unit, he capitalizes it. And it's interesting, because that's more an economist term rather than one you'd expect a political figure to use. But Jefferson definitely understood and meant to address in this document the need to define a money unit for the United States that would serve as its official unit of account and store of value. Jefferson believed that America's monetary standard needed to be fixed in terms as specific and unvarying as its official weights and measures. And in fact, in the Constitution, the power of Congress to regulate money is conveyed in the same context, actually in the very same sentence in Article I, Section 8, that empowers Congress to establish official weights and measures for the United States. Why? Because money is a measure. For Jefferson, it was imperative that our money unit should be convenient and easy to use, familiar and trustworthy. He gets to the point right here at the top. In fixing 
the unit of money, these circumstances are of principal importance, Roman numeral one, that it be of convenient size to be applied as a measure to the common money transactions of life, Roman numeral two, that its parts and multiples be in an easy proportion to each other, so as to facilitate the money arithmetic. By the way, it was Jefferson's recommendation that America adopt a decimal system for its money the first time any nation in history did so. Roman numeral three, that the unit and its parts or divisions be so nearly of the value of some of the known coins is that they may be of easy adoption for the people. Jefferson clearly believes that the needs and convenience of the citizens are primary in establishing the money unit. It should provide them with a useful measurement tool for conducting their transactions. Now, the Spanish dollar was a familiar coin to the colonists. It was widely circulated. But its silver content, and hence its value, varied considerably depending on when it was minted and where. Jefferson liked the idea of using the Spanish dollar as America's money unit because it already had meaning. But he wanted a United States dollar to be defined with great specificity because as an official measure, it needed to be accurate and reliable. On page five of this document, right in the middle, Jefferson states, if we determine that a dollar shall be our unit, we must then say with precision what a dollar is. By the time of the Coinage Act of 1792, it was determined that the US money unit would be defined in terms of a pre precise weight of silver or gold. An American dollar was 371.25 grains of pure silver or 24.75 grains of pure gold. And if any officer or employee of the US Mint were to debase an American dollar with fraudulent intent to make it worth less than its stipulated value in gold or silver, it would be treated as a felony offense punishable by death. So I guess you could say we don't quite exercise the same commitment to safeguarding the integrity of the money unit, even though the subject does occasionally come up in Congress. Uh, I'd like you to watch this short video from 2011 of Congressman Ron Paul explaining to the chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time, Ben Bernanke, that the dollar is supposed to be defined as a fixed measure. Monetary policy, which means to manage the dollar, if we don't have a definition of a dollar, I can't find in the code define what a dollar is or a Federal Reserve note. Everybody knows a Federal Reserve note is a dollar. You create a note, which is a promise to pay, and that's another dollar. So the more debt you have, the more dollars you have. But if, I'd like to know if you know whether there's a definition of a dollar and when it became known that a dollar was a Federal Reserve note. I want a definition of money. That seems to be the real job. We want a measurement of value. And this is the reason that I believe that uh, uh, we made a big mistake by de declaring fiat money, paper money, would be our measurement of value. There's no way to maintain, uh, you know, an, an interest, uh, you, you know, a, a true measurement of this. You know, if you look at what the stock market, if you bought the stock market in the year 2000, uh, the index, it would have uh, it would have taken 44 ounces of gold 
1980, it would have taken 1.5 ounces of gold. Today, it's back down to eight ounces. So in true value, the stock market's in a crash. And you say, oh, no, uh, gold is not money. And you and I will have a disagreement on whether gold is money or not. But the Fed holds gold. The Treasury holds gold. Central banks hold gold. And it, my opinion doesn't matter either because it's, it's history. It's the marketplace. Gold is the true long-term measurement of value. So how can you run your operation and def without a definition of the dollar? And what is your definition of a dollar? Uh, well, Bernanke is clearly riveted by this discussion. <laughs> but actually, the Fed chairman does come back with a definition of his own for the dollar. And it's an interesting one. Go watch. Our mandate is uh, maximum employment and price stability. My definition of the dollar is what it can buy. Consumers don't want to buy gold. They want to buy food and gasoline and clothes and, and all the other things that uh, are in the consumer basket. And it's the buying power of the dollar in terms of those goods and services that is what is important, and that's what I call price stability. The definition of a dollar, according to the Federal Reserve Chairman, is what it will buy. That is what it will buy in terms of a consumer basket of goods, the same consumer basket that is used to define the rate of inflation. Now, Bernanke began his answer by stating that the mandate of the Fed is to achieve maximum employment and price stability. He says it's a buying power of the dollar that's important, and that's what he calls price stability. Okay. But then how exactly do we... Do we define price stability? Or maybe I should say, who exactly gets to define price stability? Let's listen now to Janet Yellen, who replaced Bernanke as chairman of the Fed. In this next clip, she's speaking at a press conference that took place last month. And I want you to pay attention to how she describes the Fed's mandate of maximum employment and price stability. The stance of monetary policy will likely remain highly accommodative for quite some time after the initial increase in the federal funds rate in order to support continued progress toward our objectives of maximum employment and 2% inflation. I hmm. <laughs> so the Fed's mandate, or the objectives of the Fed, as she puts it, are maximum employment and 2% inflation. The term price stability is now defined as 2% inflation. She doesn't even blink at that, even though one might argue that it's an oxymoron, really, to define price stability in terms of some rate of inflation. If it's 2%, that means the value of a dollar decreases roughly 20% every decade. So it's not exactly a consistent measure or reliable store of value. And that begs the question, why stop at two? Paul Krugman, the economist and columnist for the New York Times, wrote a piece in 2013 that I've condensed here to its concluding paragraph, wherein he argues that Federal Reserve authorities have been utterly wrong in thinking they should target 2% inflation. It's obvious now, he says, that 2% inflation which has become the Fed's definition of price stability under its mandate, is too low. 
Krugman states that what our central bank really needs is more room to maneuver. It should have a greater operating range for manipulating interest rates so that it can stimulate the economy as needed. Krugman sums up the essential point of his article at the end with this cheerleading recommendation for a higher inflation rate. He asks, what do we want? 4%. When do we want it? Now. This argument that the Fed and other central banks should target higher inflation so they can exert more monetary stimulus through lower interest rates has been gaining momentum the past few years. It has been endorsed by Olivier Blanchard, the chief economist of the International Monetary Fund. And in fact, the IMF published a working paper last year authored by visiting scholar Lawrence Ball that argues in very strong terms for a long-run inflation target of 4%. This paper suggests that the big advantage of targeting 4% is that it would scale back existing constraints on monetary policy and give monetary officials more discretionary authority. Professor Ball believes that this important benefit would come at minimal cost because he says, quote, 4% inflation does not harm an economy significantly, unquote. He notes approvingly in this paper that another economist, Ken Rogoff from Harvard, who has worked at both the Federal Reserve and the IMF, advocates a rise in U.S. inflation to 6% in order to reduce the real value of government debt. Let's step back a minute. Just think what happens to the value of a dollar, the meaning of our monetary standard or money unit, when you have 6% inflation. In the relatively short span of 10 years, some 60% of the value of your savings, if you held them in dollars, would effectively be confiscated by an agency of government, the Federal Reserve, our central bank. It seems amazing that for the convenience of monetary policymakers who want to manipulate interest rates to get people to spend more or invest more, for the policy convenience of this small committee of monetary authorities who feel it's all right to use inflation to trick people into thinking they're making more or to reduce the amount the government owes on its debt obligations, for me, it's distressing that serious economists would advocate that we should compromise the value of money itself, the money unit as a measure, rather than be concerned about how that impacts the convenience of using money for the citizen, as Jefferson emphasized. Because having a dollar that doesn't serve as a meaningful unit of account and that doesn't provide a reliable store of value makes it much more difficult for the average person to make rational plans, whether they're deciding if it makes sense to start a business or they're trying to figure out how much they need to save for retirement. What's particularly perverse about the argument being advanced that it's more important to give expanded authority to central bankers to manipulate the value of money, the value of national currencies, than it is to safeguard the unit of account function of money, is that it's the International Monetary Fund that is pushing this approach, which is quite a betrayal of the IMF's original charter, which was to ensure that the world had a stable monetary platform anchored to gold so that international trade could be conducted on a level playing field. I'm sure everyone here has heard of the Bretton Woods Agreement, which was hammered out in July 1944 
at the beautiful Mount Washington Hotel located in the mountainous region of Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Delegates from 44 nations met at this location while World War II was still playing out. D-Day had taken place just four weeks earlier as 160,000 Allied troops landed on the shores of Normandy, France on June 6 to begin liberating territory occupied by Nazi German soldiers under Adolf Hitler. If there is a certain wonderment and reverence associated with the Bretton Woods Monetary Conference, it's because it represented an incredible undertaking at a moment when thinking about a post-war future was not that easy. And yet, it was vitally important to lay out a vision for a better economic and financial future for the world. Besieged countries needed encouragement. And here was this proposal for an international monetary system that would ensure exchange rate stability rather than having nations depreciate their currencies, trying desperately to gain a trade advantage one against the other, only to have it all turn into a downward spiral of protectionism and economic depression. That's what countries didn't want to go back to, the 1930s. The purpose of forging a post-war international monetary agreement based on fixed exchange rates among currencies anchored by a gold convertible dollar was to inspire those nations to prevail against the Nazis. The Bretton Woods monetary agreement would give nations a chance to compete fairly in the global marketplace. It would support free trade by not allowing governments to depreciate their currencies. They had to keep them at a fixed exchange rate with the dollar. It would allow war-torn nations to attract investment capital so they could rebuild and become new markets and produce goods of their own to trade. It all relied on the promise of the United States to keep its currency, the dollar, convertible into gold at the rate of $35 per ounce of gold. Now, I'm not going to say a lot more about Bretton Woods other than to reiterate that the International Monetary Fund was specifically created to maintain this international monetary system. I think it's worth mentioning that during the roughly 25 years known as the Bretton Woods era, real middle-class annual income grew at very impressive levels. Average household income for the bottom 90% increased 2.8% annually. Compare that to the growth of average household income for the bottom 90% in the post-Bretton Woods era, which, according to the 2015 economic report of the president, has been negative. Labor productivity was high under Bretton Woods, increasing nearly 3% a year. And since everyone is very concerned about income inequality these days, it should be pointed out that under Bretton Woods, the gains from real economic growth were widely distributed and broadly shared. In short, the middle class was a huge beneficiary of real economic growth during those 25 years under Bretton Woods when an international monetary system linked to gold was in effect. And then what happened? Why did Bretton Woods end? It's not that complex to explain. During the 1960s, the US government was spending too much, launching big new social programs under President Lyndon Johnson while we were still fighting a war in Vietnam. Our budget deficit was increasing. The Fed was churning out dollars to pay for it. Those cheapened dollars were flowing overseas to buy foreign goods. 
and those foreign countries who were signatories to the Bretton Woods Agreement started exercising their right to turn in the debased dollars for gold. We started to get nervous about losing so much gold. President Nixon took office in 1969. Inflation was at 4.7%. And he decided in August 1971 to protect the dollar by reneging on our agreement to convert it into gold. Now, this was a momentous decision with earth-shattering implications for the rest of the world. Let's see how Nixon explained it to the American public. We must protect the position of the American dollar as a pillar of monetary stability around the world. In the past seven years, there's been an average of one international monetary crisis every year. Now, who gains from these crises? Not the working man, not the investor, not the real producers of wealth. The gainers are the international money speculators. Because they thrive on crises, they help to create them. In recent weeks, the speculators have been waging an all-out war on the American dollar. The strength of a nation's currency is based on the strength of that nation's economy. And the American economy is by far the strongest in the world. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold or other reserved assets except in amounts and conditions determined to be in the interest of monetary stability and in the best interest of the United States. Now, what does this action, which is very technical, what does it mean for you? Let me lay to rest the bugaboo of what is called devaluation. If you want to buy a foreign car or take a trip abroad, Market conditions may cause your dollar to buy slightly less. But if you are among the overwhelming majority of Americans who buy American-made products in America, your dollar will be worth just as much tomorrow as it is today. The effect of this action, in other words, will be to stabilize the dollar. Now, this action will not win us any friends among the international money traders. But our primary concern is with the American workers and with fair competition around the world. To our friends abroad, including the many responsible members of the international banking community who are dedicated to stability and the flow of trade, I give this assurance. The United States has always been and will continue to be a forward-looking and trustworthy trading partner. In full cooperation with the International Monetary Fund and those who trade with us, we will press for the necessary reforms to set up an urgently needed new international monetary system. Stability and equal treatment is in everybody's best interest. I am determined that the American dollar must never again be a hostage in the hands of international speculators. So what do we think? Um, let's unpack this speech a little bit. Nixon said, we are protecting the position of the American dollar as a pillar of monetary stability around the world 
by ending its convertibility into gold, which had been the bulwark against devaluing our own currency. We were financing our budget deficit by printing dollars and then exporting those dollars and our rising inflation to our trading partners because they were required to keep their currencies fixed to ours. They started calling us on it, asking for gold instead of the dollars, and we responded by saying, that's it. We're not redeeming dollars for gold anymore. You'll note Nixon said we're temporarily suspending the convertibility of the dollar into gold, but we never restored it. We talked about restoring it at a lower value for the dollar, bumping it up from 35 to 38 and then $42 per ounce of gold. But by March 1973, it was clear there would be no new system. Nixon said, let me lay to rest the bugaboo of what is called devaluation. Well, there's just nothing more to add to that line. Um, <laughs> I looked up bugaboo. It means something that causes fear or distress out of proportion to its importance. Maybe Nixon didn't think it was important if we devalued the dollar, but the rest of the world sure did. Nixon actually asserts that the effect of this action will be to stabilize the dollar. Against what, you might ask? But in any case, he assures us his administration will press for the necessary reforms to set up an urgently needed new international monetary system. Well, that didn't happen. Now, the next few slides I will be showing you have never been seen in public before. They are personal letters I received from Nixon in the early 1990s, long after he made this speech ending the Bretton Woods system, long after he was impeached and left the White House in humiliation. Look, in August 1971, I was a teenager growing up in Southern California, working on my tan. Um, I was not cognizant of what Nixon was saying on economic issues, even as I was happy to join my friends in denouncing him for sending some of their older brothers to Cambodia. I certainly never expected to have any sort of written correspondence with him. But shortly after I wrote my book called The Coming Soviet Crash, which was published in January 1989, I started getting letters from Richard Nixon. By December 1991, the Soviet Union had collapsed, and, and I became quite concerned that the West seemed wholly unprepared to help Russia make a successful transition to a free market economy. I hated what the IMF was doing, advocating currency depreciation and government-to-government -government transfers that would load Russia up with massive indebtedness to the West. And I wrote up fiery op-eds for the Wall Street Journal and found myself receiving letters from Nixon like this one. Dear Judy, I want you to know that I agree completely with your criticism of the IMF's ability to handle the Russian economic transition. So, the former president is very complimentary. He agrees with me completely. And then he writes this, private investment, not the lumbering, heavy-handedness of the IMF, is the key to a free market success. And I start to think, you know, perhaps I have misjudged this man. He seems <laughs> quite perceptive. There were more letters, often handwritten, like this one. It starts off, your piece in the Wall Street Journal this morning was brilliant. 
So I'm beginning to like this guy. <laughs> Nixon invited me to a Washington conference on world events that he organized, and he sat me between Henry Kissinger and James Schlesinger during the luncheon. It was fascinating. Meanwhile, I had started working on a new book with the title Money Meltdown. So I was doing a lot of research on Bretton Woods and how it ended. It occurred to me that maybe in my correspondence with Nixon, now that we were colleagues, I could broach the topic very carefully, very gently, of international monetary reform. I wanted to know Nixon's thought process on why he ended Bretton Woods and what sort of new international monetary system he had in mind when he said it was urgently needed. In one of his letters back, he included a sentence that I consider to be fairly stunning coming from the man who ended the world's international monetary system. Nixon says here near the bottom, I am not sophisticated enough in economic matters to discuss monetary reform, and consequently your book and mine will complement, not compete with each other. Was he really suggesting that he didn't understand very much about monetary issues? Here's another letter where he puts it bluntly. I know very little about monetary policy. <laughs> I share these with you today because it's kind of a reminder that political leaders, while their decisions can have a very major impact on the world's economic destiny, may have limited knowledge themselves concerning the impact of monetary policy on currency movements, financial capital flows, and how it all affects trade and economic growth. The politician's framework for making decisions does not necessarily coincide with what economists might recommend. Then again, economists often disagree with each other. The bottom line is that politics and economics have to come together at a critical moment if any proposal for international monetary reform is to have a chance. The most compelling rationale for moving toward a new gold standard or a new Bretton Woods would be to convince people that a stable monetary platform spurs real economic growth. You'd have to show that it would be an improvement over what we have today. That shouldn't be too hard, with major central banks each deciding how much to inflate, how much to intervene in credit markets, how much to raise or lower interest rates on a meeting-to-meeting -meeting basis. Meanwhile, investors are left breathlessly trying to gauge the impact of these monetary policy pronouncements on the value of currencies or derivatives on equity shares and debt obligations. Corporations hoard cash, and banks stockpile excess reserves, all waiting to learn what Yellen or Draghi or Kuroda or Joji Chan might say next. Could we do better than what we have now? And would the world be better off? Well, as I say, it takes the perfect combination of a compelling political leader and a truly visionary economist to push forward any new monetary agenda with the idea of spurring world growth. Now, we came close in 1983 with this book, A Monetary Agenda for World Growth by Jack Kemp and Robert Mundell. Jack Kemp, 
I think you all know, was a congressman from Buffalo, New York, a former professional football player, a quarterback, who was also surprisingly well-read when it came to economic theory. Kemp played a primary role in carrying out the Reagan revolution based on supply-side economics. That turned the US economy around in the early 1980s. His guru was Robert Mundell, an economics professor at Columbia University, who's widely considered to be the intellectual godfather of the low-tax, tight-money formula that pulled off an economic miracle by transforming an economy mired in stagflation to one that would achieve dynamic growth. This book was an attempt to help the entire world live up to its growth potential by providing a stable monetary foundation. It's no secret that Jack Kemp believed an international gold standard would not only increase the benefits of free trade, he was sure it would open new opportunities for the entrepreneurs of the world, and that would lead to greater prosperity for all. Kemp was highly motivated by moral considerations in his economic pursuits. Building an orderly and ethical international monetary system remains the unfinished agenda of Jack Kemp. Unfinished is an understatement. One thing the world does not have today is any kind of an international monetary system. Even now, the divergent central bank policies of the Fed and the ECB and the central banks of Japan and China are causing currency mismatches that could very well spark the next global conflagration as borrowers struggle to pay back dollar-denominated debt. We are experiencing tremendous skittishness in financial markets, and there's broad uncertainty in the private sector about where we're headed. Emerging market currencies are in free fall, with the Bloomberg Index of major developing nation currencies falling to an all-time low last week. No one knows what will happen when the Fed starts raising interest rates this year. No one knows what will happen if the Fed doesn't start raising interest rates this year. The best description of today's monetary disorder that I have heard came from Jacques de la Rosière, who was the IMS managing director from 1978 to 1987. He's 85 years old now. Speaking at a conference in Vienna last year, LaRossiere said it was the lack of coherent monetary arrangements that resulted in the 2008 global financial crisis. He said that inflation targeting by central banks leads to, quote, volatility, persistent imbalances, disorderly capital movements, currency misalignments, and eventually currency wars and capital controls, unquote. According to LaRossiere, what we have today is far worse than a non-system. It's an anti-system. About a year before the 2008 crisis hit with all its fury, Alan Greenspan appeared on Fox Business News, where he made a very interesting statement. You'll recall Greenspan had retired from his position as Fed chairman in 2006. I wonder if he was having any kind of premonition when he gave this interview.
why do we need a central bank? Well, the question is a very interesting one. We have at this particular stage a fiat money, which is essentially money printed by a government, and it's usually the central bank which is authorized to do so. so some mechanism has got to be in place that restricts the amount of money which is produced, either a gold standard or currency board or something of that nature, because unless you do that, uh, all of history suggests that inflation will take hold with very deleterious effects on economic activity. Now, you were a great admirer, in fact, an accolade of, uh, of Ayn Rand, the great philosopher who believed that in the absolute most limited role that the government could play in people's lives. She probably wouldn't have been a fan of the Federal Reserve Board, would she? Well, uh, I don't know, because we never discussed that in particular. But uh, I think she recognized that uh, there are lots of institutions which we would be better without, but nonetheless probably uh, require them if indeed society as a whole uh, decides to do that. Remember, we're li we live in a democratic society, and that compromise is the very essence of a democratic society because if we're all individuals with different ideas and we want to live together we have to do that and there are numbers of us myself included who uh, strongly believe that uh, we did very well in the 1870 to 1914 period with uh, an international gold standard yeah we did we, we did well without the federal reserve people forget people forget we did well without the federal reserve so, after serving for 19 years as the head of the world's most powerful, the world's most influential central bank, Greenspan states in 2007 that he strongly believes we did very well with an international gold standard. Just think, global credit markets would seize up less than a year later, the global economy would crash, We'd have bailouts and quantitative easing, zero interest rates, and we'd still be limping along in 2015 with lackluster growth, low productivity, and disappointing wage increases. It's been a pretty grim recovery. And still, a very scary question remains. Has anything been fixed during all this time? Has Dodd-Frank solved the problems that caused the 2008 crisis? Has it made things better or worse? Should we be concerned that the level of over-the-counter derivatives out there currently has a notional value of $630 trillion? That's roughly eight and a half times the value of global gross domestic product, and that's higher than it was in December 2007. democratic capitalism could survive another blow on the scale of 2008 and what it has since endured. It seems to me that the possibility of another meltdown needs to be on the radar screen of whoever aspires to be the next president of the United States. In September 2008, neither John McCain nor Barack Obama covered themselves in glory when they suspended their campaigns 
to rush back to Washington, D.C. dramatically to deal with the unfolding global financial crisis. We were only six weeks away from Election Day. McCain opted out of a scheduled televised debate with Obama, saying, quote, I cannot carry on a campaign as though this dangerous situation had not occurred, or as though a solution were at hand, which it clearly is not. With so much on the line for America and the world, the debate that matters most right now is taking place in the United States Capitol, unquote. What actually took place in the U.S. Capitol was not so much a debate, but rather a broad buy-in from the Congress and from both candidates to the pitch being made by Bernanke at the Fed and Hank Paulson at Treasury that a government bailout was needed to prevent the potential collapse of the banking system. I bring this up because I think we need to be asking, what happens if there's anything like a replay of the 2008 crash between now and Election Day 2016? Are candidates even thinking about this? How would any of them address the threat of exchange rate turmoil, crumbling financial markets, and the possibility of another meltdown? Is anyone offering any bold proposals for breaking out of this boom and bust cycle perpetuated by central banks that makes the world so vulnerable to a full-blown depression? Look, it's never easy to forge new thinking, and it's even harder to build a fundamentally new system. But then again, the world situation today is perhaps not as bleak as it must have appeared that summer in 1944. It takes political leadership and determination to make real change happen. It always has. It always will. Some people have a gift for political leadership. Ronald Reagan believes government causes inflation, not business, not labor. In the 1960s, the federal government decided to stop tying the value of the dollar to gold. This permitted them to print as much money as they wanted to spend, and that's why we've had this crippling inflation. We'll never regain price stability until we restore some form of gold backing to the dollar. As president, my first priority will be to make the dollar the most trusted currency in the world. Anyone here actually saw that ad in 1980? Well, I don't know about you, but I haven't heard any of the candidates currently running for president make the flat-out statement that we'll never regain price stability until we restore some kind of gold backing to the dollar. I have not heard any top-tier candidates say that their first priority as president will be to make the dollar the most trusted currency in the world. I haven't heard that yet. But I must tell you, the campaign ad by Ronald Reagan that you just watched aired only very briefly before it was yanked. My friend Jeff Bell, who ran for Senator of New Jersey on a pro-gold standard platform last year, was an aide to Reagan during that 1980 campaign. He tells me, and it certainly rings true, that Milton Friedman was a big factor in killing the ad. When I was a fellow at the Hoover Institution, Milton's office was down the hall from mine. I know he can certainly be persuasive, and he clearly was 
intellectually vested in the notion of floating rates. So I guess we'll never know whether President Reagan came to regret not pushing harder to link the dollar to gold. Certainly he expressed admiration in private for the gold standard and for fixed exchange rates. He liked them because they were solid. That last film clip was the final one in my presentation today. I think it underscores what I said at the beginning, that having a currency you can trust is a principle that brings politics and economics into convergence. It defines your bedrock political philosophy. Reagan says in the ad that his priority is to make the dollar the most trusted currency in the world. When the integrity of money as an honest unit of account, as a true measure of value, can be compromised at the discretion of central bankers, whether here or abroad, it raises questions about the role of government in managing economies. And it takes us back to deciding whether central planning or free markets offer the better path to prosperity. Currency manipulation, I predict, is a subject that will make its way into the US presidential campaign. It will matter to voters. It has already become a hot potato for Congress, and it nearly scuttled the push for trade promotion authority a few weeks ago. I am sure there will be plenty of lively debate when the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement is wrapped up and presented to Congress for approval. The tricky part, though, will be in defining Who's doing the manipulating? The US, Europe, Japan, China. Talking about currency manipulation is just a step away from talking about international monetary relations because you have to be prepared to say what would constitute the right exchange rate between two currencies, or three, or four. And that leads to asking whether there should be any rules for establishing monetary arrangements among trading partners or between whole regions or for the entire global economy. As Robert Mundell, who would win the Nobel Prize in economics in 1999, has always said, the only closed economy is the world economy. The big issue before us, I believe, is to decide whether this is the moment politically and economically, to start asking how we can build a new international monetary system that is orderly and ethical, that supports free markets and genuine competition. Is it possible to define a monetary unit of account that works across borders, that holds its value through time, one that would be universally recognized and accepted would a new international monetary system likely be comprised of sovereign nations agreeing to abide by self-disciplining rules in issuing their own national currencies as they were under the classical international gold standard? Or should we be moving toward a private currency with ever-increasing acceptance such as Bitcoin or another digital form of money? If that private currency were to become the world's go-to money, its common international money unit, would it ever need to have any kind of link to gold or some other anchor? Is it enough to simply declare that only a finite number of units can be created in the end? 
The algorithm that limits the number of bitcoins that can be issued was deliberately chosen to approximate the rate at which gold can be mined. Well, my hope is that this talk has stimulated your thinking. I would be happy to hear your own thoughts or to answer questions during our remaining time together. Thank you all so much. Yeah, uh, over the last number of months, maybe m many months, mm -hmm. as I am on the internet, an advertisement comes up. And Excuse me, just a moment. Is the mic supposed to be on? It's, can you hear him? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. So at any rate, there's this advertisement, and it has Ron Paul speaking, and he says there's going to be a big crisis and so on, and click here to find out what it's all about, and I've never done it. Should I? <laughs> you know, uh, I always enjoyed through the years watching uh, Ron Paul debate with the Fed chairman. You know, his ones with Greenspan were great, with Bernanke. I always enjoyed it. Um, I don't endorse him as a candidate myself uh, for other reasons. I don't mean Ron Paul. I mean you mean Ron Paul. Yeah, but I mean, even when he was running, I thought that was very interesting. I was very happy it would bring up the subject of sound money. I think he's terrific on this subject. But I have seen those same ads. Um, and, um, you know, he could end up being right. I mean, I certainly think we're very vulnerable. But should you? I, You know, whoever says we're going to have a meltdown is going to be right at some point. Um, so I don't want to sensationalize it. I just want people to think about what we could do to prevent it, or what, what should we have been doing the last seven years. So I guess I don't give anyone investment advice, <laughs> but um, you know, I thought it was good as a candidate that he brought up this. Well, when he was involved in Congress, I thought it was great. But what he's doing now, I, I, don't, I don't follow it as far as predicting you know, when the stock market's going to collapse. So. Uh, yeah, so the, the potential devaluation of the dollar is something that I've been really interested in for a while now. Uh, but a thought occurred to me fairly recently that I don't have many dollars, but I do have a lot of debt. So selfishly, does it make sense that I would advocate 6% inflation, or are there other factors that I'm not taking into account? Well, I guess the beauty of a democracy is you vote for what's in your interest. Um, and, you know, I, I do not think it's good for an economy to encourage debt and then, and then manipulate the money so that people don't have as big of an obligation. Uh, but that has certainly been a political issue before, right? Uh, Williams, Jennings, Bryan, didn't that work for him? Um, yeah, I mean, it's not just, the, the biggest gainer, of course, is the federal government uh, issuing so much debt. And, um, you know, if they do it, I suppose you could say, well, that's practical, but Again, whenever you compromise something for political gain or immediate fiscal relief, instead of sticking to the principles that I think the country was founded on, um, you know, I, I think it's a slippery slope. So, but I hope you uh, are able to get out of debt. <laughs> Hi, that was, that was very interesting. I, I had a question, a couple questions and, and an observation around the... Uh, Central Bank for all central banks, which is the international bank, the bank of international settlements. 
And one is, I have a question is, is it true that they actually have diplomatic immunity and all are uh, legally diplomats, all the, which, which are the world's central bankers when they are at the, uh, in bail at the, at the... Uh, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm not aware of that. I mean, all of the central bankers, uh, Yellen and Draghi, all of them go to, usually the, it used to be about once a month to Basel, Switzerland, right. where the Bank of International Settlements is, is headquartered. Um, as far as their diplomatic status, I don't, I don't know. I'm okay. I, I understood it to be um, a sovereign entity, a bank. So the second uh, aspect of it is what role is uh, the Bank of International Settlements playing in, in uh, aren't they the responsible for setting the ultimate rules and standards for the global central banks? Uh, no, not really. They're really more a forum where the central bankers meet to talk about like the Basel capital standards and um, in some ideas that Paul Volcker had at the time about how much capital banks should have. And they're trying to kind of harmonize what banks do around the world so that banks in one country don't play off the regulatory structure in another. But I would say they're more of a, almost a think tank. Um, they keep good statistics. And ironically, um, I have to say that to me, the arguments they're making are much better than the ones I see coming out of the Fed these days. It's the economists at the Bank for International Settlements who are saying that we have a spectacular financial bubble going. They are saying that financial markets are being moved by the utterances of central bank officials. They think that's extremely dangerous. Um, there's a guy named Claudia uh, Borio, really powerful uh, in the statements he's making, not in his ability to do anything about it. But I actually think if you want to look at some of the better research, and they have access to all the data for all the central banks, they are worried about a financial bubble in a way that uh, other central banks, the ECB and the Fed, are saying, oh, oh no, we're monitoring that. OK. Um, what, can I, they had apparent, one of the things is they had agreed to encourage uh, a disparity in reserves between commercial and um, uh, private lending reserves between 4% and 8% and help which contributed to that 2008 bubble pushing um, money towards mortgages, is, is that? Well, I, I, I never liked the capital standards, I have to say, because they not only did that differentiation, they made banks not, not have to hold anything against sovereign debt. So they really pushed them into that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not too big when they did that particular thing. That goes back many, many years. Um, and I think it was more that it was con carried out there. But they're not making policy. They're just a, a place where the central bankers of the world gather. And as I say, their economic research these days is ringing truer to me in terms of warning about um, the impact of inflation targeting and how it is really forging a huge disconnect between the value of global equity markets, global financial assets, and the real economy. So I, I, I like that research, but I, did, I never did like the capital, adequate, capital adequacy standards. I agree with you there. Yeah. So the only advantage of age is unlike that other young man, I have no debt and lots of savings. So I'm not really very happy about the inflation rate. <laughs> I do have uh, two questions. One is I'm curious, since Nixon had acknowledged he knows nothing about monetary policy, do you have any idea who might have told him we should get off the gold standard? And the other question is, I do not believe any statistics that come out of our government or any government. 
And as a result, I wonder if you have an idea of what the real inflation rate is right now, because when I go to buy a bag of groceries now versus many years ago, I think inflation is a whole lot more than they're claiming it is. Wow. Okay. Well, I like all those questions. One, who advised Richard Nixon to do that? Um, Paul Volcker. <laughs> he was with him at Camp David when they decided what to do. Um, he was in charge of um, international monetary relations at Treasury at the time. And Paul Volcker, you can have the most interesting conversations with him. He said that at the time they did it, it was because we obviously had inflated. These, these countries were demanding the gold, and um, we had to stop it. We had to stop it. Um, he will tell you today he never, never thought that would be the end of the Bretton Woods system. He thought it would be a temporary shutting down. They would reset the value of the dollar. As I say, they tried to do. They made it instead of 35, 38, then it went to 42. He always thought that it was just a little breathing room until they could recalibrate, work out something all the signatories were comfortable with, and, and put it back into operation, the Bretton Woods system, continuing to have fixed exchange rates based on a gold convertible dollar. Um, and then floating rates came along. He said, I never thought that having no system would be the new system. So that, I, it, fascinating to talk with him, but he's the one who said we need to shut it down now. And then that's why Nixon said we urgently need to do a new one, because he had said that too. Uh, on your savings, um, oh boy, I, I am so sympathetic because you are subsidizing, uh, frankly, the people who are getting... 1% money to put in the market and doing pretty well. You are, you are subsidizing that. Um, it's, it's funny. Um, Janet Yellen last November started talking about inequality of wealth, and she was very upset about that. And so there's a gentleman with a group, I think American Principles is a group, uh, Steve Lonigan. I didn't know him. He started protesting out in front of the Federal Reserve and saying, you know, what about the other people who are being hurt by monetary policy? You're very worried about kind of, he said, left of center groups. What about people who did everything right? They played by the rules, they, they worked hard, they saved money, they put it in, planned for the retirement, and now it's not working because you have these artificially low rates. He said, you should meet with economists who will talk about that. To everyone's shock, she said, you're right. So he brought in four of us, four economists, and, and some people representing people on Social Security, people whose pensions were not paying off, people who had underfunded um, retirements because of the suppressed interest rate. And she had to sit there for an hour <laughs> and listen to us complain that this was highly unfair and very much undermined the principles of effort and reward in the United States and being responsible. So she was forced to hear. I, I haven't seen a change of policy. On the statistics, short answer, I completely agree with you. I don't trust the statistics on GDP growth or on inflation. So, <laughs> Hi, I'm Keith. I'm an intern here. Uh, so I'm glad you brought up Milton Friedman. Uh, I think there's a lot of contention amongst libertarians with regards to the gold standard. Um, 
He said that it made just as little sense to for the government to hoard gold as to say cheese, which they're actually doing right now, and they have a giant mountain of cheese in Montana, um, and that the real value of gold was that it restrained the federal government from printing too much money, essentially. So would you be opposed to, instead of going to a gold standard, constitutional limits on the power of the federal government to print this much money or do this, this quantitative easing that they're doing now, or does it have to be a gold standard? It doesn't have to be a gold standard. It doesn't have to be gold. It seems to me that every central bank holds gold as a monetary asset, so that's one reason to look at it. But I think what we have now would be a nightmare for Milton Friedman. The last thing he would want is to empower government through central banks to be even more of a dominant force in the private sector. So I think that um, the theory of floating rates was the idea that the market would set them, and that's a very attractive idea. The problem is, first, barriers to entry. Who can issue currencies? You know, we didn't have Frederick Hayek's private currencies, competing currencies. We just have governments, and they can manipulate their currencies. I just came a couple of weeks ago from Robert Mundell's annual monetary conference. He has a beautiful castle in Siena, Italy. He's had this conference every year since 1971, and uh, last year and this year I co-chaired it with him. And he had famous debates with Milton Friedman over fixed versus floating. And Friedman in the end said during these debates, I have no problem with the gold standard because it forces people, forces government to abide by this self-discipline. And he said, the only other thing I would do, I think it's easier to go with floating rates because government will never be disciplined. So he said, so why make everything adjust when shocks hit a system? Just, just let the exchange rates be the shock absorber. He said, it's, it's easier that way and then every country gets to do what they think is in their own monetary policy interest. What he really hated was pegged rates which is to, for a country to say what's going to be the exchange rate, but not actually have to conduct their, their budgeting and, um, and their policies in accordance with um, what a fixed exchange rate would require. So. Thanks. One more. <laughs> um, your discussion today has been very much grounded in our current situation, but I have more of a theoretical question. Um, if we were under a regime of free banking, is it necessary that we have a commodity standard, or could fiat currencies be sufficient um, by having market discipline uh, serve as the way to maintain monetary integrity? Well, I listened to uh, George Selgin's presentation uh, on free banking. It seems to me that free banking could work best if you had what Lou Lehrman has suggested, which is the, the U.S. just say, as they did in Jefferson's day, this is what a dollar is, you know, go for it. And then those banks couldn't be insured by the government, but they would have to issue um, notes and, and have sufficient capital and, and be disciplined by competition among other banks to maintain whatever that appropriate cover of gold was. Um, could you do it with fiat currencies? I think so, uh, you know, but then I would rather go to the Hayek approach of competing private currencies because if, if, the, if you're still going to have governments putting out currencies, then, then 
What's the role of central banks in that? Um, I, I think it would be possible to have the United States government as a way to inch toward something better, issue a treasury security that was a gold bond, that at the end of, say, five years, you could either have uh, $1,000 or one ounce of gold. It would be like a tips bond. You know, uh, Robert Rubin, as Treasury Secretary, came up with a tips bond, Treasury, uh, treasury Inflation Protected Security, by just saying people don't want to get ripped off by inflation, so a tips bond will compensate them for that. Well, people who were worried that there's too much money relative to gold, whether you think it's going up or down, you may or may not want to buy an instrument from the U.S. government that says, uh, five years from now, we'll either give you $1,000 or an ounce of gold. And then, let's say we did that. We actually came close. That's, that'll be for another lesson. It was proposed um, fairly recently. Um, but then, let's say China did it and issued a five-year bond that would be, um, could be redeemed in, in a fixed rate of yuan. And then, let's say the European Central Bank did. All of a sudden, you're letting the market decide what is the appropriate fixed rate among those currencies because they're all going to pay off in five years the same thing. So you're establishing the beginning of a fixed rate system, and that could be an interesting asset to use, not just to tell you what people are expecting about the future of currencies, but to begin to lock the US government into something. And it would be the first time in a long time that a US financial instrument invoked the word gold. I think it could be very interesting. Well, thank you all so much. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate you coming.